stablecoin usage has almost decoupled from crypto exchange volumes. So even if the volume on exchange is really low on a specific day, I've seen that the stablecoin transaction volume stays consistent, which is kind of bizarre. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect with Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. Let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey, Parth. Hey, Ryan. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. Looks like it's just the two of us today. I, I know. I know. And I think it's it's been a while since both you and I are on one of these. And then, of course, when we both show up, uh, the other t- the other two are, um, you know, away having fun. They're at um, Future Proof in Huntington Beach. Um, so looking forward to... Um, Hearing, hearing about it when they get back. And if you're there and you're listening to this, you should, uh, you should hunt them down because they're, they're in the wild there somewhere. <laughs> Wait, I, it's so surprising because I, I don't think I've ever attended a non-crypto conference. And I think Future Proof is one of those, right? Um, th- that's actually true. Um, I can't even remember the last time I went to a non-crypto <laughs> event. That's because the crypto events just require like every shred of energy that you have. <laughs> um. So what's going on? What's on your mind? I've been thinking deep um, about one thing, which is widely underrated in crypto, which is this idea on how each wallet is public and how each transaction can be tracked. And so we know, I know it's super obvious, but what that really means is that you can track like your crypto veils or your smart money where you have value moving from one place to another and you get to see each transaction they make. And it's, to me, it's almost crazy when you think more about it. Like it's imagine a world where you have the world's top portfolio managers or your favorite hedge fund manager, and you can see each trade that they make, right? That's the equivalent that you already have in crypto just because of how the, the nature of the, the blockchain, which is public. Mm. So to me, it's almost crazy. I don't know if you, if you think the same, but it's, it's crazy how underutilized this concept is. And for me, uh, I was just telling, this to you before before we got on, but it's almost become like a hobby for me, which is to track whales and just look at them, look at their transactions. <laughs> so like a lot of times I'm like eating my sandwich and I'm like looking, oh, by the way, this person is doing you're this. Lur- you're lurking. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And so it's so like legit whale watching is is a hobby now. And so maybe we could talk about some of the tools in the future episodes, but that's what's been uh, going on in my mind. No, honestly, I, I, I agree with you. And it's always been really interesting to me that you can do that. You, you like pretty easily do that level of surveillance for on-chain transactions. 
Um, and, and it's, it's, there's, there's really good, you know, not only block explorers, but also like blockchain visualization tools, um, for most of the major networks that, you know, are pretty mesmerizing actually. And I do agree. I think it would be, it would be cool for us to do, um, to do a special episode on that. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we wanted to at least touch on briefly today. Um, so we, we have a few things on the agenda. Um, well, of course, I'll of course, uh, you know, give you the floor to talk about what you tried last week. Um, but then we're gonna, we're gonna spend, I, I would say the majority of the session today, um, talking about the announcement out of Visa, um, expanding their kind of settlement capabilities to other, um, parts of their network using stable coins. Um, and I think it's, it's a good opportunity for us maybe to take a step back part and talk a little bit about kind of the landscape around stable coins, you know, what utilization looks like. Um, you know, it's actually an area that we've seen, you know, quite a bit of movement on recently. Um, and I think historically it's been like a slept on part of the industry and it kind of ebbs and flows. You know, sometimes you hear a lot about it and sometimes you don't. Um, but I think we're entering a period where, you know, we're going to start to see more and more movement on that. Um, maybe briefly talk, touch on, um, you know, regulation, but certainly, you know, in the context of the visa announcement, um, the fact that they're, they're doing it on Solana is also really interesting. So I definitely want to get your thoughts on that. Um, and then we'll, um, we'll maybe transition if we have time at the end to talk a little bit about an announcement coming out of MetaMask with some additional capabilities that they've added, um, and tie that in with some of the, um, um, tax and accounting developments that we've seen on the regulatory side recently. So with that, what did you try last week? So today I want to talk about this tool, which I've been using for the last two months. It's called Lore Scan. And so let me give you some context around it. But a lot of people who are in crypto have this love-hate relationship with Etherscan. Some think it's too complicated. Uh, some think that it's the best research tool ever. But for those who don't like Etherscan as much, I believe that there's an explorer which is giving Etherscan uh, a ride for their money or wait, or run, run for their money. Run, yeah. run, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so LoreScan is, uh, Lore is this tool which is uh, kind of a, a level up to Etherscan, but it wants to make on-chain search as simple as a Google search, right? So it's the first human readable explorer and it's got three big features. One is that LoreScan has human readable transactions where you can have a bunch of advanced queries, right? From these legible transactions. The second is on-chain notifications, which is kind of my favorite. So if I have a position on Uniswap and I want to be notified on when my reward is greater than $100, or if the total volume of my liquidity pool just went down by 50%, I want to get notified to take some sort of action and LoreScan can help me with that. So it's really useful, it's hyper-customizable. And then the third feature is called LoreGPT, which I'm sure you would have guessed just by the name. You can add any sort of contract or any address and ask questions in chat GPT style that, hey, what does the smart contract do? Or why did my liquidity go to zero? And it'll try to give you answers. So it's almost like, imagine Etherscan, Nansen, Dude Analytics, and AI in like, one single product. And it's it's one of those products which you have to try to fully understand its full powers. But that's what I tried uh, last week. That's actually really cool. And and by human readable, do you, you mean it puts it kind of in, in plain English, right? In terms of what's happening in the transaction? Because I know, you know, 
the UI of, you know, traditional block explorers has definitely improved significantly, you know, since like the earliest implementations, but it's still, you, you do see a lot of transaction hashes and, you know, wallet yeah. addresses, and it isn't necessarily immediately clear what's going on if, you know, for the uninitiated at least. So for me, what I'm, I, I've kind of realized my pattern as a customer that whenever I'm sort of doing a lot of on-chain research or if I want to go in-depth or if I want to go whale watching, then I use Etherscan a lot because it gives me the granularity that I need. But if I'm just casually checking my portfolio, I want to check my transactions, uh, then I just go on LoreScan because it, it it kind of converts your uh, transaction ID into simple sentences. Like you could say, hey, I just... I reclaimed my my reward on on Compound, or I here's what you, here's where I minted an NFT, and that's just one part of it. So so human readable transactions, but the idea is you can query as much as possible. You can say, hey, I want to I want to query all the mint NFT transactions that I did where I paid less than ten dollars, and also in the month of September. So it kind of gives you like a lot of flexibility around that. Yeah, which is I think particularly not only interesting but important from a usability standpoint when you think about you know, again, the non-crypto natives starting to get their bearings with, you know, adopting this technology and, you know, people are used to being able to go to a place and, you know, like even like for your, your bank transactions or your credit card transactions, like search a merchant or set a date range and being able to see all of the, you know, um, all of the transactions within that range in a, in a, to your point, in like a plain English type of way, I think that's, that's actually, you know, going to be pretty fundamental. And I know even for myself, you know, every time I send a transaction or I basically do anything, you know, that's, you know, broadcasting a transaction, um, I'm looking, you know, at the block explorer to make sure that the transaction is settled and that I have quote unquote finality. Right. So I think it's like, it's an important part of being a crypto user. Um, the AI piece is interesting too. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Is it actually like, is it actually AI? Do you know? Like, you know, because I, I think there's a lot of things that claim to be AI that maybe aren't, well, don't meet the textbook definition at least. Yeah. AI is the new crypto, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's like, everyone's like connecting to AI. But I think if you try the lower GPT, I've had some decent answers. So like I, I decided to put in the, like some specific part of this NFT, which I was about to mint. And I wanted to ask like, hey, who are the different parties? And it gave me good answers. Yeah. It's getting there, but it's it does use AI from my understanding. Yeah. TBD on like, you know, the, actually how much AI is being implemented. But yeah, I yeah. Think that's that's definitely interesting. Um, all right. Do we want to, you want to jump into the Visa story? Maybe just for for the benefit of the audience, you want to just provide an overview of, of kind of what, what the story is and then we can go from there. Yeah, sure. So last Tuesday, Visa announced that they have plans to settle payments between merchant acquirers and themselves using USDC, which is a stablecoin which we've spoken about. So now to understand why this is really important, let me sort of try and explain what's happening under the hood, right? So a big piece of the payment infrastructure is the role of merchant acquirers or payment processor. So when Ryan decides to go buy coffee from a coffee shop and you swipe your credit card, it's the merchant acquirer that makes sure that those funds land in the bank account of the coffee shop. So these payment processors are kind of the common connection, or, or you could say the middleman between your local shop and your credit card issuer, which in this case is Visa. So the way Visa works is that with these payment processors, they send them aggregated money so that these payment processors can then pay out retailers, or in this case, uh, the, the coffee shop that I was talking about. 
And typically, this process takes three to five days, right? And so here's the twist. When Visa decides to settle in USDC, the retailers automatically get their money faster. And this way, this way, retailers kind of get this benefit of the money hitting their accounts much sooner. So, so you know how we've been talking about uh, stablecoin being the, the killer use case? Uh, the idea of Visa is to really aim for instant settlements uh, between them and the payment processor. And so I do want to. So, so from a user, like a end user standpoint, is there any is there any impact there? Yeah, so that's a really good question because as of now, no. But the way I would answer that is that this is a typical top down funnel approach where you start off by moving the big rocks, which is payments between businesses to be settled in USDC. So right now, this is more of a B two B use case. Right. But once these merchants start getting paid faster, some of them might say, "Hey." payment processor, since you're settling in USDC and converting that to fiat, why don't you pay me faster if I decide to hold USDC, right? And so I'm not saying that your local coffee shop will accept crypto in the next year, but big companies like Uber and Airbnb have already stated that they have grand plans for crypto payments, considering how big their payment volumes are, and that too across different countries and different regions. Well, and I, I think when you think about the, the, you know, to your point, the transaction volume and the amount being settled, particularly in a network like Visa's, it's pretty staggering to think about, right? And from a, like, even from a capital efficiency standpoint, um, you know, I think there's, there's tremendous gains to be had there in terms of getting the payment in it faster than, you know, the traditional kind of settlement time frame. And I think like, it's not an issue that we really appreciate, particularly being in the U.S., just because the end user experience, I would say over like the last, what, probably five years has gotten so good that many people have kind of been tricked to thinking that the payments are instantaneous. But, you know, when in fact there there's so many moving pieces and the system is still quite analog in the back end. So. I think to your point, Parth, this kind of seems like the logical place to start and that we're kind of replumbing the system to use yep. this new age technology. Um, and then potentially there might be more opportunities down the line for, you know, not only benefits to the user, but for the user to, to be kind of a little bit more hands-on, right? In terms of, you know, using stable coins in, in day-to-day transactions. Yeah. So, so Ryan, you bring up a really good point about how it almost seems like as a, as a customer, it seems that there are instantaneous settlements. And so companies like Square, they do offer instant payouts to merchants. But what they're doing is they're essentially delivering payment now while they wait for the funds to clear. So right. they are taking that risk uh, as of now. I do want to say that Visa right now has started this initiative with two payment processors, uh, WorldPay and Nuve. And together, they both pull in $5.6 billion dollars. In yeah. revenue, so it's not just a fun like blockchain technology experiment, yeah. right? It's it's actually pretty legit. So, um, can we talk a little bit about the networks? Because I think like like transaction throughput, when we think about these B two B type transactions and settlement, is going to be really important. So, Ethereum and Solana, I believe, are the networks that they've focused on initially. Any thoughts on kind of why that that's the case? So for Solana, I think it's pretty obvious that they have a really high transaction uh, throughput. And and that's actually the one critical detail that I, I missed uh, while talking about this, which is that Visa decided to use Solana for settling. And I feel like I am I am biting my words or eating my words 
Uh, but ever since L2s on Ethereum came out and they got traction, like Optimism, Arbitrum, Polygon, yep. in my head, I almost thought that, well, who's going to use Solana and other blockchains until the next bull run? Well, there was there was big concerns around the future of Solana, particularly post-FTX um, collapse and the relationship or I guess the level of kind of... Uh, overlap right between yep. you know the for support at least uh between like the ftx the people that ran to ftx and and solana so i think like these types of announcements are, are are generally you know a net positive for for the network so just to put numbers to what you said um if you you may remember that we covered this but alameda research had close to 1.4 billion dollars in solana yeah two days before the collapse and that at that point of time, it seemed like the final nail, nail in the coffin. But Solana has been kind of coming back from the dead. Like it has honestly really impressed me with the builders community and the infrastructure that they're building. Visa decided to use Solana. Shopify is using Solana Pay. Solana's DeFi ecosystem is thriving, especially liquid staking protocols and lending protocols. And it almost seems like they keep taking punches one after the other, uh, but they, they do survive. In fact, uh, there might be some potential selling pressure next week since FTX is planning to get liquidated and they have close to $685 million in Solana. Yeah. But, but I do want to say that their, their developer ecosystem that they have built and all these partnerships that they are building is, uh, is definitely making them, it's, it's kind of making me rethink my opinion about Solana. I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. And I mean, to your, Point. I think the development chops that support the network are obviously a big part of like the long-term success. So there's obviously been some, some, you know, what I would perceive as some short-term challenges. And to your point, we may seem continue to see that at least in the short term, but long-term, like a vote of confidence from a, from a company like Visa is, is, is significant and, and should be noted at least in my opinion. But I think there's more though. And I, this is again, strictly my opinion, but I also feel like Visa might have decided to use Solana in a very strategic way, A, because of higher throughput, but also because of this underrated developer system and how that developer ecosystem can be influenced compared to Ethereum, right? So Ethereum has this developer ecosystem, which is pretty hardened, almost ossified, and you're Enterpri building on- And some would say enterprise grade, right? right. Like, yeah. yeah. And, and Solana is, is still kind of, it's maturing. And that's why it, is, it might be a smart move of Visa to now engage with them. Yeah. But I, I was, I'm frankly pretty uh, impressed. Yeah. Well, can we take a step back and maybe talk a little bit more about stables and kind of just what the state of the market there is? Um, you know, so this is, this is clearly, as you mentioned, a B2B play, um, you know, really looking about, you know, process and capital efficiency, but I guess there's, there's another side of the market, um, which is, you know, really focused more on the end users, right? So when we think about stable coin adoption, you know, the, the, the use cases that immediately at least come to my mind are, you know, peer-to-peer -peer payments or, you know, point of sale payments, um, you know, cross-border remittances has of course been, you know, something that people have touted, although I'm not really sure how much traction we really have seen on that front. And then, um, you know, just trading pairs within, you know, yep. crypto trading, right. I think is, is probably the biggest area. Um, is there any other use cases that you can think about, you know, any areas that are of particular interest to you? So what I would do is maybe I want to go back to the visa settlement story and then kind of answer that question. So when you talk, when you talk about cross-border payments, one thing which I'm really excited about, especially in the US, is the compounding effect 
of this announcement, right? So you have four big players. You have Visa at the top, then you have these payment processors, then you have retailers, and then you have Ryan and Parth, right? So And so now they are trying to have USDC connections in the first two layers. And it's almost like this top-down mass adoption of stablecoin payments, which, uh, which I think might be possible in the next uh, three to four years. But it kind of goes back to our discussion on how this is good validation for the value proposition of stablecoins, low cost, uh, low risk and fast cross-border payments, right? So I'm not saying every merchant is going to accept USDC in the future, but every merchant loves the idea of instant settlement, right? So, so Visa, MasterCard, a lot of these payment processing companies are kind of really trying to tackle that use case. Um, but what I really find interesting is more about the on-chain metrics on stablecoins, and I would say especially more around fiat-backed uh, stablecoins. And so I, I don't want to do like a like-for-like like comparison, but in 2022, stablecoins settled over $11 trillion on-chain. Compare that to Visa, which did $11.6 trillion, and PayPal did $1.4 trillion. And I'm not saying it's it's a like-for-like like comparison, but it kind of gives you some numbers. Order of magnitude is important, yeah. Right. And then you have close to 25 million blockchain addresses that hold stablecoins between $1 to $100. And so for me, another interesting observation was that stablecoin usage has almost decoupled from crypto exchange volumes. Mm. So even if the volume on exchange is really low on a specific day, I've seen that the stablecoin transaction volume stays consistent, which is kind of bizarre. And, and well, do we think that's because the trading pair use case is maybe getting, you know, somewhat deprioritized versus some of the other use cases? I mean, I think given the fact that we're in a bear market, I think that's entirely yes. plausible, right? Yeah. Yeah. So whenever you talk about these numbers, a lot of people think that, hey, you know what? Uh, 25 million blockchain addresses, how many of them are uh, market makers or exchanges or all these smart contracts? Yeah. But here's a fact which I liked even more. So more than 70% stablecoins are held by addresses or externally owned account. So this excludes all your centralized exchanges, all your smart contracts. So these stablecoins are held by humans and not corporations or contracts. Yeah, like that That to me is really interesting and could potentially be maybe even a stronger indicator of you know, adoption or, or utilization, I should say, changing, right? Um, yeah. Where people are potentially, and again, it's it's hard to know exactly, you know, using the block explorer, what people are doing and using chain analysis, what people are doing, but potentially using it to store value or transfer value, you know, in a peer to peer type of way, um, which to your point, like I think is, is one of the fundamental pillars of this being one of the killer apps of, you know, at least asset tokenization. Right. And you also get some sort of validation from a lot of these traditional finance companies coming into the stablecoin market. Maybe do you want to just quickly talk about uh, PayPal? We covered it here. So, you know, I don't want to be redundant, but, you know, PayPal, of course, you know, making a notable announcement that they're launching their own um, their own stablecoin. Um, and that will be for, you know, end, end user payments, right? Um, both, you know, with merchant integration as well as peer to peer. Um, and I think, you know, 
probably one of the most notable, you know, stablecoin launches to date, just given PayPal's position and and kind of the payments ecosystem. Um, so I think, you know, what's, what's notable to me, Parth, about this and, and a lot of the other developments that we've seen, because, you know, there have been other projects that have launched recently is, is the timing, right? Because, you know, you, we, we hit on it earlier, but, you know, when we think about crypto or digital assets regulation, again, you know, through a U.S. lens, this has been something that we've heard a lot about, right, over the last year. I think there's, you know, generally a consensus that, you know, stable coins could become systemically important to the U.S. financial system and need to be regulated. Um, and we've seen a lot of kind of proposed legislation and, and some movement on this front. And, you know, there's there's no uh, certainty around kind of what the fate around that proposed legislation is or what the timeline is in terms of it getting approved. Um, but I think it, it's likely that we will eventually see some sort of legislation. And it's interesting that, you know, a provider providers like Visa and like PayPal and you know others are are moving forward with these projects right i think um before you know you have really concrete guidance it's a highly nuanced issue right so they have a lot of expertise in their areas um so i'm sure due diligence has been done but to me like bear market people are you know again back to the fundamentals um and to me like tokenized fiat is is one of those fundamentals of the space so it kind of makes sense that that's where people are choosing to focus their time and their resources yeah. um you know paypal had certainly been working on it you know for a very long time at least reportedly yeah i don't think it would be fair to talk about stable coins uh without talking about usdt uh so in my opinion there are obviously two biggest fiat backed stable coins usdt and usdc and USDT, which is Tether, has obviously time and again uh, had issues on how opaque its reserves were or are, but somehow it just works. Like if you want to redeem big amounts, you are able to redeem. And uh, even though most people don't know how transparent it is, but it's just this black box which just stays together somehow. But if you talk about USDC, which came out of Circle, they have partnerships with Visa, MasterCard, Stripe, Block, Robinhood, and a bunch of others. So they are trying to build market neutral infrastructure, right? So you would think that Circle just came out of nowhere, right? And ideally, you would think that a big payment company would have been better suited to launch a stablecoin. But now the narrative has almost flipped, right? So you have Visa, MasterCard, Stripe, all of these competing firms, they would rather use a stablecoin that's market neutral versus use a competitor's stablecoin like maybe PayPal USD or Pi USD. Right. And so I don't know if you uh, caught on this this news as well, but Circle announced this partnership with Mercado Pago. I'm not I don't know if it's the right pronunciation, but it's the largest fintech firm in Latin America. So it's like the the, the Amazon of LATAM, mm -hmm. which has close to 200 million users, and they are rolling out USDC. So so USDC happens to be in a good position since it's market neutral, uh, but I, I think not being backed by a big fintech firm is almost going in their favor as of now. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think I think we will get to a point. We're, we're obviously in like the early innings of adoption here, at least in the institutional context. There has been, I think, these silos that have developed to your point, like in terms of people, you know, picking a specific stablecoin and kind of building around that, where at least, and this is my opinion, I think longer term, you're going to, we're going to, the market is going to dictate you have a higher degree of interoperability where, you know, th these will be, you know, 
platforms which are utilized, right? Whether it's Tether or USDC or PayPal stablecoin, um, and kind of the user may may or may not kind of have insight into what stablecoin they're actually transacting, and they just know it's redeemable for you know a dollar, right? And I think that's yeah. going to be that'll be like the determining factor. I, I don't. I don't see, you know, and again, my opinion, I don't necessarily see a world where, you know, you have, you know, uh, highly, highly uh, siloed systems. It's just not how payments work. Right. And that's kind of the whole reason why we're, you know, why we're here, right. <laughs> um, is like kind of the future of financial market infrastructure. And, and I think, you know, that's, that's generally speaking, you know, a highly interoperable stack. Yeah. Speaking of, um, interoperable stack. So I was trying to get my, my uncle set up with MetaMask. Uh, yeah. This was like a week, week and a half ago. And, uh, <laughs> he's, uh, so he's, he's a, he's a typical like Indian uncle. And he was like, Hey, I put my credit card in, bought some ETH. How do I off ramp? How do I get my money out? Cause then it's a scam for me. Like yeah. the, the, the typical mentality is if I can't get my money out, then this is all a scam. Right. So maybe you want to yeah. talk about MetaMask. I don't know. Yeah, it was interesting and good segue. I guess a timely development for your uncle. Um, so MetaMask last week announced, um, you know, MetaMask like their sell feature, um, which is effectively going to you know help people liquidate their crypto um, into fiat um, in a pretty seamless way, right? So I think historically, like the ability to trade has been relatively limited through most wallets, um, and so you know to your point, um, you know MetaMask I think has done a really good job as um, you know, an onboarding ramp, um, for people, um, particularly into DeFi, you know, if people are getting their feet wet with all sorts of assets, you know, MetaMask is generally a a pretty user-friendly way to do that. Um, and so now I think they're kind of doubling down on the other side of that, which is, you know, enabling people to get out, right. And get back into, um, into fiat and move money to their bank. And so I think this kind of is a pretty high degree of automation and a pretty seamless, um, that kind of abstracts away a lot of the complexity with trading in these assets, um, yeah. so I think it's a big win. I, you know, MetaMask, um, you know, obviously has a pretty robust roadmap in terms of what they're looking to roll out. And I think, um, from a usability standpoint and a user experience standpoint, it's, it's pretty solid. I know you were talking about instant settlements for retailers or for, for people like us. And when you think about MetaMask sell, once you are KYC'd, it actually takes you less than 10 minutes to get your money back in your bank account, yeah. which I think is phenomenal. Cause I remember, I remember how on ramps used to be easy, but like for off ramps, you had to legit get like an Ikea card or like a Starbucks card. Like that's how they would off ramp earlier. Like, no, I know. I, say earlier, I mean, yeah, I've like been around, well, I've been around that long too. You know, <laughs> it is amazing. <laughs> yes. Like how crafty people had to get, to get into the space and, and to get out. And I think in that respect, the on and off ramps have really matured quite a bit. Yeah. Um, there's still some, there's still definitely some work to be done there, but you know, for the majority of users, if, if you're at least, you know, remotely interested in getting, you know, getting involved with crypto, it's doable, right. Yeah. In, in a variety Absolutely. of different ways. Um, but I, I think one, uh, one thing that I want to touch on quickly and then, um, you know, well, you know, Jason will be back next week. So I'd love to get his thoughts on it. Cause he follows this, this space pretty closely. Um, we saw some, um, last week we saw FASB, um, which is the Financial Accounting Standards Board um, voted to basically implement new rules around how um, you know institutions account for their crypto asset holdings, um, which will basically enable them to um, record the the value of the assets um, based on their fair market value, and then any um, you know appreciation or depreciation can be reported on their income statements. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other. Um, 
there's a whole bunch of other like disclosure uh, related rules that are going to be coming into effect with these, these new guy this new guidance. Um, but I think in general, um, you know, people are, you know, institutions that hold crypto on the balance sheet in a meaningful way um, are, are, are welcoming this new guidance. Um, I think previously there, there wasn't a ton of guidance and, you know, maybe it wasn't, you know, necessarily the ideal uh, structure for accounting for balance sheet assets. Um, it, it's worth noting that, you know, it really is going to apply to the, to the big, you know, fungible crypto assets like Bitcoin and Ether. If you're holding like NFTs, for example, or some of the other more bespoke, you know, bespoke crypto assets, um, that's not within scope here. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, as we think about institutional, you know, adoption and the legitimization of the asset class, um, I think this is, you know, generally speaking, um, perceived as a, you know, positive development. And then there was some other, you know, proposed rules coming out of the IRS and treasury around, you know, what is going to be viewed as a quote unquote crypto broker, right. And bringing that definition in line with, you know, brokers in the context of, of, of fixed income and equities. Um, I think these proposed rules maybe are getting a little bit more pushback from the space just because kind of the, the wide range of, um, you know, what is included within the scope of the definition of a broker, including payments providers, um, hosted wallets, and even certain decentralized exchanges. And I think that last piece is what is maybe getting the most pushback just given kind of the reporting requirements that would come with these new rules and the ability for decentralized exchanges to meet those requirements. Um, but that that's all to say, I think there's a lot of movement, you know, again, we're in a bear market, you know, bear market server building. I said it a billion times here, but you know, I think we're starting to get more clarity too, which could help really catalyze, you know, kind of the next wave of, of adoption and, and, you know, really kind of help inform what people are building on. Right. So yeah. I think, I wish I, I wish I had an intelligent comment right at the end, but I, I'm out of words. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I, we're, you know, I, I think you, you've, you've made plenty of intelligent comments and, and this has been a great discussion. Um, you know, really interested, you know, stable coins, you know, I have to be honest with you when I first got into this space, like stable coins were like the thing that I was l- the least interested in. And I think a lot of like crypto, you know, um, maximalists would kind of identify the same way, but I think that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, particularly when we think about like crypto going mainstream with stable coins. So, um, really, you know, fascinating to see how the bigger kind of payment providers and institutions have gone about developing in the space and adopting. And, you know, I think it's, you know, something that there'll be plenty for us to report on in the future. Cool. cool. Well, this was a great discussion. I think, hey, I think we did pretty good given that Jason and uh, Jack aren't here, but looking forward to welcoming them back next week. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon, Parth. Thanks for the discussion good. and uh, thanks everyone for joining. Have a great rest of your week. Crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is for investors with a high risk tolerance. Crypto may also be more susceptible to market manipulation than securities. Crypto is not insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Investors in crypto do not benefit from the same regulatory protections applicable to registered securities. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, 
a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated, based on the information available at the time, and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and are not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution would or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.